Thank you, Kim. So, let's see, I'm, I'm just a couple days shy of eight months being ordained, so time, time is flowing. And yeah, I think it's fitting, Kim, also that you start by saying, come Holy Spirit with our prayer, uh, because I'll be talking about scripture, and in specific about uh, the symbols of the gospel, and digging deeper into the different gospels uh, to help us understand why we have these four different symbols for each of the four gospels. And then also, uh, we'll get into the tabernacle a little bit. Uh, based on the, the write-up I did for this, you might think it'll be balanced half with gospel symbols and half with the tabernacle, but it'll be more like uh, a, a fifth. Uh, one one, one one-fourth for each of the Gospels, and then we'll add a, a fifth with the Tabernacle. So uh, I, hope, I hope you enjoy it. I was, I was asked to speak on something that inspires me, and I have a love for Scripture. And when I was in Rome, we, do, we, we have to complete four years of theology as seminarians to be ordained a priest for dioceses in the United States and, and other parts of the world. But the program, the theology program in Rome is only three years. So kind of odd, it doesn't match up what we do. So the last year, we get to choose what we want to focus on, whether it's moral theology or church history or canon law. I chose to focus on scripture and biblical studies. So that's, that's where my passion. So all topics relating to scripture I love. I'm certainly not an expert. I did not earn the, the degree in it because instead the bishop wanted me to stay home and, and be a priest in a parish, which thanks be to God, I love it. All right, so the tabernacle and the gospel symbols. And I hope to lead you into a deeper encounter with Jesus in the word and sacrament. So, question. What are the four gospel symbols? Does anyone know? Raise your hand. Does anyone know? A few? So we, well, you already got them all. All right. Let me, yeah, let me help us all out. Sister, what's your name? Lucille, nice to meet you. All right. We should get an in. The four gospel symbols we have, we'll, we'll do it in reading order, not in Hebrew, but in, in English. So we have the eagle, the man, the bull, and the lion. So those are the four symbols. So, Sister Lucille, you can't answer this. <laughs> Which... Which gospel does the eagle symbolize? John. The gospel of John. Good. All right, what about the man? Matthew. The bull? Luke. And then that leaves us with the lion and Mark. Okay, so why? Well, I, I got all set with the computer, but I left my Bible in my bag one second. Don't let me forget my brief recount. 
So these, these symbols, why these four symbols? Well, we first hear about them. Is this going to work? I was distracted by the, the soup. <laughs> so, I, had a, I had a delicious bowl of white, bean, white chili bean soup. Super good. So thank you. Ah, compliments. compliments. So, so in, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, we first hear about these four. Sometimes when we look at this, this image here, we think, uh, well, we have, we have an eagle, we have an angel, uh, a bull, and a lion, but they all have wings. Some, some naturally have wings, some don't, but we would say a man, an eagle, a bull, and a lion. Okay, so Ezekiel. We, we read in Ezekiel chapter 1, bear with me, it, it's... This one's a little long, it's my longest one. In the thirteenth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was among the exiles by the river Chabar, the heavens opened and I saw divine visions. On the fifth day of the month, this was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. The word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar. There the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I watched, a great storm wind came from the north, a large cloud with flashing fire, a bright glow all around it, and something like polished metal gleamed at the center of the fire. From within, it figure, figures in the likeness of four living creatures appeared. This is what they looked like. They were in human form, but each had four faces and four wings, and their legs were straight, the soles of their feet like hooves of a bull, gleaming like polished brass. Human hands were under their wings, and the wings of one touched those of another. The faces and their wings looked out on all the four sides. They did not turn when they moved, but each went straight ahead. Their faces were like this. Each of the four had a human face and on the right of the face, a lion, and on the left of the face, an ox. And each had the face of an eagle. And it continues. A little confusing, right? <laughs> but we at, least, we at least get from there the first reference to these four figures. We hear it again in Revelation. Chapter 4, there's the Bibles on your table if you want to follow along. Chapter 4, after this, of Revelation, after this I had a vision of an open door to heaven, and I heard the trumpet-like voice that had spoken to me before, saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen afterwards. At once I was caught up in spirit. A throne was there in heaven, and on the throne sat one whose appearance sparkled like jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a halo, as brilliant as an emerald. Surrounding the throne, I saw 24 other thrones, on which 24 elders sat, dressed in white garments, 
and with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Seven flaming torches burned in front of the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In front of the throne was something that resembled a sieve of glass like crystal. In the center and around the throne there were four living creatures, covered with eyes, front, and in back. The first creature resembled a lion. The second was like a calf. The third had a face like that of a human being, and the fourth looked like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were covered with eyes inside and out, day and night. They did not stop exclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They throw down their crowns before the throne, exclaiming, Worthy are you, Lord our God, to receive the glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Because of you, they came to be and were created. I read a little extra there because when we hear of these four creatures, which symbolize the Gospels, it's fitting that they are they're giving praise to God and they're directing our praise to God. And they're, they're words that we hear. Uh, I pray often in the breviary, the prayer of the church, uh, these words once a week. And then also, the Holy, 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 we are familiar with that uh, at Mass. And so it's drawing our attention, these figures are pointing to, to Christ. All right, so let's, let's break them down. Why each one is associated with the, the specific Gospel, and that will uh, open up our understanding of, of the Gospel writers and who what, what they are focusing on, what characteristic or attributes of Christ they are focusing on, and maybe help us um, relate to Christ um, in, our, in our own lives just a bit more. So Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew is the man. The gospel begins, how? The genealogy. And you'll see that I, I will take you through the different Gospels, and what cues us in, if we ever forget which symbol goes with which Gospel, all you have to do is you just have to open to the first, first chapter of that Gospel, and it will remind you. It will remind you. And we think Gospel writers, just like anyone who writes a story or a book, the introduction, it has, it has bearing on what's to come. So what you see at the beginning of the book, themes of it will be carried out throughout the book. And so, with Matthew's Gospel, it starts with the genealogy of Christ. And so if, you, if the light bulb hasn't already gone off, genealogy, man, let's read a little bit. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham 
became the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. By the way, this is my, this is my favorite gospel when we read through the whole genealogy. <laughs> one of them, one of my favorites. Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. We'll skip a few for your, for your sake. <laughs> Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar became the father of Mathon, Mathon the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of her was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus the total number of generations from Abraham to David is 14 generations. From David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations. From the Babylonian exile to the Messiah, 14 generations. And then it goes into the, the nativity of our Lord from Matthew's gospel. But it shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of the covenants of old, starting with Abraham, who God said, I will make of you a great nation. Your name will be great. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And that's fulfilled in Christ. We also hear David. I don't know if David didn't come up, I cut him out. But David, the anointed one, meaning Messiah. Anointed one is Christ in, in Greek, and Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. And Jesus fulfills that. As we obviously know, we know how the story goes. He's not the, the Messiah or the anointed one, the great mighty and powerful one that's winning wars against the enemy nations like David did, uh, but we know he's much, much greater than that, um, defeating the devil in Hebrew. But So Matthew, through his gospel, he portrays Christ as the Messiah. One second. No, I don't. Okay. Now, the first the first person to make the connection between the gospel symbols or pulling them from scripture and connecting them to the specific gospels is Saint Irenaeus, so an early church father, second century. And so he makes this comment. This then is the gospel of his humanity, for which reason it is too that the character of a humble and meek man is kept through the whole gospel. So he's the fulfillment of man, the perfect man, the fulfillment of the covenant, and he is not the great powerful mighty king that the people, Jewish people are hoping for, uh, but he's, he is meek and humble. And some examples of this in Matthew's gospel would be he gives the Beatitudes. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then he also, one of my, I have a lot of favorite scripture passages, but one of my favorites is, Come to me, all you who are labored and are burdened, for I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we know, his yoke is the cross, but deeper 
bigger than that, it's doing the Father's will humbly. All right, let's move, let's move to Mark. So Mark, do you remember? Who's Mark? What's the symbol? The lion. The lion. Why the lion? How, how does the gospel start? John the Baptist? As one crying out in the desert. Yes. And so the lion is an animal of the wilderness. And as Irenaeus makes the connection, the roar of the lion is calling out to Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The preaching of John the Baptist. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey. And this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so there's the voice, the roar of the lion, uh, calling, proclaiming Jesus. Irenaeus says this, The voice in the desert crying reminds one of a lion's roar, and the prophetical spirit descending to earth reminds us of of a winged message, hence the lion's wings. The lion also signified royalty, an appropriate symbol for the Son of God. And so if you ever forget, just again, go to the start of the gospel, it starts out in the desert. A connection that I made too, as, as Mark's gospel, the lion being an animal of the wilderness, of the wild. Mark's gospel is the most graphic, I would say. Like when Jesus does a healing, you know, it talks about him putting spittle on his finger and touching the eyes or touching the ears to cure someone. Um, so also, um, an animal of the wilderness, John is, is not a very well-groomed man. Um, and, and in some ways, Jesus is portrayed uh, and that way too, just very, uh, very raw human interactions. Luke's gospel. Luke's spot. Luke is again the the bull or the ox, the ox we can say. And so we skip. Uh, Luke has a four verse prologue, so I just skipped uh, right into the action. This is this is one of my favorite. Uh, symbols and connections with the gospel. So we'll get a little deeper into this one. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
Both were righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Once, or do we skip? No, we're continuing. Once, when he was serving as priest in his divisions, turned before God, according to the practice of the priestly service, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Then, when the whole assembly of the people was praying outside at the hour of the incense offering, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. All right, so why, after reading this, how does the ox make sense for Luke? Any thoughts? We don't hear about. Do you have a thought? Yes, that is it. What's your name? Thanks, Evelyn. Beautiful. So yeah, the ox is an animal of sacrifice in the temple. I certainly didn't know that at the age of eight. Eight, sorry. I like to walk around. I like to visit the elementary and middle schools at Roncalli in Manitowoc. So I'm getting better at the age thing. But my, I have a niece that's only eight months old. That's my only niece or nephew. So. I don't know the ages that well because of family. But yeah, the ox. And it's an animal of sacrifice. And so we start out immediately. The action starts with who? It starts with Zechariah, who is who? He's a priest. He's one who offers sacrifice. And the setting is in the temple where the sacrifice would be offered. Okay, so now, what does that mean for, how does that tie into um, the, rest of the, the rest of the gospel and where Luke's emphasis is, and how does, how does the theme of sacrifice explain, explain Christ and his gospel? So let me read what Irenaeus says. Oxen were used in temple sacrifices. You're as smart as Irenaeus, Evelyn. <laughs> St. Luke begins his gospel with the announcement of the birth of St. John, the baptizer, to his father, the priest, Zechariah, who was offering sacrifice in the temple. St. Luke also includes, so this theme continues throughout the gospel, he also includes the parable of the prodigal son in which the fatted calf is slaughtered not only to celebrate the younger son's return, but also to foreshadow the joy that we must have in receiving reconciliation through our most merciful Savior, who as priest offered himself in sacrifice to forgive our sins. Therefore, the winged ox reminds us the priestly character of our Lord and his sacrifice for our redemption. And so it points to Christ the symbol of the ox as an animal of sacrifice points to Christ as a priest. And so let me show you where we first see that action. 
the presentation of the Lord. It occurs in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. And it goes like this. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the days were completed for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in accordance with the dictate in the law of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is that the Jews, the Israelites would also have to, they would have to make a money offering to purchase back their son. Because, as we know, all the priests of, of the Israelite people would come from the tribe of Levi. So the sons of all the other male-born would have to be purchased back. But here, it's noted, if you have the New American Bible, I still use my Catholic Youth Bible from high school. And in a footnote there, it says that, that that price was not paid. And in fact, the story, as we see Luke, Luke does oftentimes, in many of the Gospels, they take wording and they take stories from the Old Testament and they retell them in the New Testament and in their fulfillment in Christ. And so Luke likes to parallel his stories with Samuel and the birth of Samuel, the Annunciation. The Annunciation of Samuel's birth to Hannah, his mother, you'll see is very, it parallels the same, the, the Annunciation to Elizabeth and Mary. And so, in this case, Jesus is being offered in the temple much like Samuel was. And Samuel was offered, he was left there with Eli, as we know the story, to serve, to eventually serve as a priest. And so Jesus, too, is being offered in the temple, and perhaps when he's 12 years old and he's found in the temple, that's his first, the first sign that it's like he knows this is my father's house, this is where I am called to serve as a priest. And as we know, he becomes not only priest, but also the victim for the sacrificial offering. So in that sense too, we could make that, draw out that uh, symbolism of ox as Jesus being that sacrifice for our, our sins. Let's go to John's Gospel. John's prologue is very famous. For those of you who are, I don't know, older than 70, <laughs> you may remember that it was proclaimed at every Mass, at the end of every Mass, before the current Mass that we celebrate. It goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing came to be. What came to be through Him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'll skip a few verses. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. 
Okay, so why is John's symbol the eagle? Why the eagle? How does that make sense? Coming to this side. <laughs> Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. You're you're also saying that, like Irenaeus would say it. Yeah, this gospel, we can say it, it soars above the rest. The gospel begins with the lofty prologue, and rises to pierce most deeply the mysteries of God, the relationship between the Father and the Son, and the incarnation. Exactly, and so we would say. That John has this, this lofty view, like he's soaring above. We think, who's, who's been on an airplane here? <laughs> Many of us. And when, when you're up on an airplane, I'm, certainly when I'm flying, I'm worrying about many things still. But, but when you're up on an airplane, you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to worry about stop signs or traffic. <laughs> But it gives you this grand it gives you this grand perspective of the world. And you think of how tiny the cars look and how tiny the people, and then it puts things into perspective a little bit, at least for me. But it's a it's a view as the eagle would have of soaring above and, and seeing seeing all things. Now, I don't know if there's any I don't know, zoologists here, or I'm an animal scientist, so that might be the closest thing, I don't know. Um, but they also say that the eagle is the one animal that can stare into the sun without blinking. And so we think about John laying his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, that he was able to pierce, to look into the Son, the Son of God, and understand these, these mysteries, these great mysteries of Christ's divinity and his humanity, him becoming man. I'll read what Irenaeus says. The Gospel of St. John, unlike the other Gospels, engages the reader with the most profound teachings of our Lord such as the long discourses Jesus has with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Does anyone watch um, The Chosen? Those Nicodemus scenes? And the Samaritan woman. And the beautiful teachings on the bread of life and the good shepherd. Jesus, too, identif identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who embraces him as such will rise to everlasting life with him. So again, the eagle soars above the rest. All right. So we went through, we went through the symbols of the Gospels. Does do any? I I asked uh, I asked Dr. Schweigel. I said, do any of the uh, the churches in Sheboygan on the north side have these symbols in their churches? And he said that this one does. I think right. Or not this one. Holy name. Holy name does. Okay. So you see those. So I hope when you see them, you'll, it'll jog your... Okay, yep, around the pulpit. And oftentimes, the book of the gospel, the book of the gospels will have 
the symbols on the corners. Yes, okay. Thank you, sister. Does any, before we jump into the Ark of the Covenant, does anyone have any questions on the four Gospels? Or any light, any insights that went off in your mind that you'd like to share? Nothing? So, so my so my quiz question is, if we forget which symbol goes with which gospel, what do we do? Read the beginning of the. Just yeah, just read read the first chapter, the first seven lines. You got it. All right, the Ark of the Covenant. We can see a depiction of it here, and this is the caption of this photo was Moses and Joshua reverencing the Ark of the Covenant. So, the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually, ironically enough, it's most succinctly described in the New Testament, in Hebrews. I figure if St. Paul, or the, the disciple who penned this, uh, he, he can summarize it better than Father Matthew Cully in 2023. So, so here it is, the Ark of the Covenant. Behind the second veil was the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. So the tabernacle would have been a tent, like a smaller tent, within which was the, the Ark, what we saw the image of, the golden box, what we would think of as a tabernacle. Behind the second veil was the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies in which were the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, entirely covered with gold. In it were the gold jar containing the manna, the manna with which God fed the Israelite people in the desert, the staff of Aaron that had sprouted, Aaron as the high priest, priest and prophet, and the tablets of the covenant. So three things, the manna, the staff of Aaron, and the tablets. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the place of expiation. Now is not the time to speak of these in detail. Did I? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know how that got in here. <laughs> But I have to double check because I, I took this right from scripture. <laughs> Didn't turn off his mic when you dictated. Who's who's following along in their Bibles? I'm testing. <laughs> All right. So just to be clear, this actually is the scripture. This is the scripture. <laughs> So he gives us a good summary, the author, and then he says, now is not the time. <laughs> so maybe the time to talk about it, he's, he's saying, is 2023 at St. Clement Perry. Okay. I, I didn't catch that when I first put it. But as we, as we read this, what, what stands out? As, 
of what we know of tabernacle, what do we what, what do we recognize in this scripture passage? What have we carried over from the tabernacle? The gold container. Gold. The gold, yeah. The manna, yeah. The the bread come down from heaven is now the bread of life come down from heaven, Christ. Anything else? Yeah, the high priest staff. Is that? Yep. Yeah. Yes. That's that's what I was hoping you'd catch too. Yeah. So often, oftentimes in churches. We have, I know our cathedral, oops, sorry, <laughs> Green Bay's cathedral, we, we have the two angels facing the tabernacle. I don't know if, does the Milwaukee Cathedral have it? I know they have a beautiful tabernacle. Um, yeah, it used to, okay. Um, so, yeah, so, so some, some things that cue us in that there's, there's not necessarily anything new with our tabernacle, there's just, you could say, things are, are fulfilled and carried over from the Old Testament. When we talk about the tabernacle as Catholics, what what is the first tabernacle? Um, as we know the tabernacle, what, what's the first tabernacle in the in the world? Mary, wow, you guys are good. Yeah. The first one to carry Jesus, the presence of Christ. It's Mary. And so there's it's fascinating throughout throughout scripture, there's these connections. Luke, remember we talked about Luke? He likes to draw on Samuel. Samuel. He'll retell stories that are told in Samuel, but in their in their fullness with Christ. Uh, he does that too. In reference to the tabernacle and so I'll share actually I just I just have a few of the notes here I'm going to read a bit more than what I have up here hopefully Let's start with what we have here. So, the Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament. We we know that Luke is telling us that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. Why? It's the story of her visitation is a retelling of David and the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And so, David, he gets up. And, and goes with the Ark, much like Mary gets up and goes with the Ark of the Covenant. And then after it's resting, the Ark of the Covenant, I'll, I'll read this uh, from chapter Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. Start, I'll start with verse 11, and then we'll enter into this verse. 
The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord, uh, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? The ark remained for three months. Yeah, if I talk like this, can we hear? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Super. You have to use your outside voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so again, the, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Oben, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. When it was reported to King David that the Lord had blessed the household, household of Obed-Edom and all that he possessed... Because of the ark of God, da- oh, here, it, here it is. David went up, went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with joy. And so Mary went in haste to a town in the hill country to, to meet Elizabeth. We hear that here. As soon as the bearer, this is my favorite one though. As soon as the bearers of the ark of the Lord had advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Then David came dancing before the Lord with a bandage, girt with a linen ephod. And so, when Jesus is greeted by Elizabeth, someone dances. Oh, here we go. All right, so let's repeat this. In, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, let's, let's start from... Let's start from earlier on what I have here. Two, three. Let's start with chapter, Luke chapter two, verse, oh shoot, chapter one, sorry. Chapter one. If you guys are turning your pages in your Bible, you won't be as distracted. (laughs) during those days Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah to a town of Judah where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting the infant leaped in her womb and Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit cried out and so the infant leaping in the womb is like David dancing before the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, which holds the presence of God, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the priestly staff, and the bread from heaven, the manna. But in this case, it is actually God coming down from heaven. Another, there's another, um, there's another fascinating correlation between the overshadowing I won't look it up because I'll I'll take time but the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit which happens at the Annunciation is the, the, the word for overshadowing is the same word that's used in Exodus when the cloud covers the tent the tent of meeting when the the tent that only Moses goes in. It's the same word. Again, so Luke is telling us this 
is the Ark of the Covenant, Mary. Now, now of course, the, the Ark of the Covenant for us is the tabernacle, uh, which holds Christ's presence, God with us, and it continues, it fulfills what we hear in the Old Testament. So, we still have 10 minutes, but is it, do we have more than that or less? Oh, we have 10. Um, okay, so that's, that's my presentation to you. And so I hope that now having a better understanding, understanding of the tabernacle and the gospel symbols, we are prepared to have a deeper encounter with Christ in the Eucharist and in the Word. Does anyone have any questions or comments? say in terms of gospel commentary that's the best that's the best that you will get um, but I can't I've, I've glanced at it so I don't know if it explains these things in full but that would Bible, that's the one I'm using, it's, sometimes the commentary or the explanations below are a, a little weak yeah. and lacking, so if you don't have like a, I don't know, years of study, it can miss, it can be a bit misleading or not miss, it just doesn't take as deep as it could, so I don't know, that, that'd be my recommendation, the Navarra, it sounds like is okay. Yeah. yeah. Commentaries, you're saying, yeah, commentaries, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's also a, there's a Catholic commentary series, um, I think that's what it's called, um, as well, but that requires a lot of books. <laughs> I, yeah, I know, I know too that there's a, um, there's a program called Verboom, a software that you can, you can pay for and download. And you can download different commentaries onto it, and it's good for sorting through. Um, something that I found find interesting, if if you guys want to dig deeper into the Bible, um, if you go, if you type in your computer Bible Hub, it Bible Hub interlinear. 
So it'll, 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 the interlinear will show up, but you put in Bible Hub, and it gives you an option to look at the original language. And I know you're probably like, I, I don't care about that. But, but what's cool about it is you can, you can click on the, the Greek word that's transliterated, so it's, it's like in Latin characters. You can click on that, and it'll show you everywhere in, in the Bible where that word shows up. So it's fascinating because things like uh, when Jesus calls Simon Peter the rock, you can click on it and say, okay, where else in scripture is the rock used? Because sometimes our Protestant brothers and sisters will argue that the rock is speaking of Jesus Christ, but nowhere in scripture is Pietro, well, what is the? Petros, thank you, thank you. Nowhere does that describe Jesus. That Greek word is not used to describe Jesus. So, like things like that, you can be like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bible, that's Bible Hub. I think it's cool. <laughs> any, any other questions? Yeah. So, in the last decade or so, the Catholic Church has moved to move the tabernacle off the altar. We didn't do that here, but yeah, we brought the last decade or two has been coming back. Okay, good. I'm glad to yeah. hear that. I was wondering what was the thought behind that. Why did they do that? That's a, that's a great question. Okay, so yeah, what's the pers what's the purpose of the tabernacle? What's the purpose? It's Jesus. It's, yeah. Well, what's the purpose? I mean, the tabernacle is not the tabernacle is not the center of attention. The Eucharist, right? Right. And why? Why would we need a tabernacle? Because the Eucharist comes at Mass on the altar, right? So why do we need a tabernacle? Safe place to store. Yeah, safe place to keep the Eucharist for. For mass, well, we don't need the tabernacle for mass technically. You need the altar and a priest right. and bread and wine to keep Jesus present. That's one good answer right, right. for us to come in the door to meet Him. Yeah. What else? Yes. Yes. Exactly. So to keep the Eucharist for the Eucharist to be brought to the homebound. And so, there, there were times, even way back when, perhaps, the, the tabernacle was not right at the center. It would have been kept in a side room for the, for the Eucharist to be brought to people. But, that side room would have had a place for people to stay and pray. I think oftentimes now, Logistically, it makes the most sense that we have the, t the place we pray is in our church. So why wouldn't we have Jesus front and center in our church? But yeah, so this idea to keep the, the, the tabernacle is to keep the Eucharist um, for the sick, uh, but also for adoration and with an in increase in 
devotion to the Eucharist outside of Mass, adoration, prayer, it, it's, it's found its way back to the center. I mean, it's been that way. There was a moment that it was, it was moved out. Um, I think there's more behind it that I don't really want to get into. But <laughs> this isn't the time. <laughs> what? What does the author of Hebrews said? Now is not the time to speak. we have an adoration chapel that runs from 5 a.m. on Monday to midnight on Thursday into Friday and it's there's a tabernacle in that room separate from the main tabernacle of the church and it's just adjacent um, so I think I think for the purpose of that's that tabernacle is yes yeah, there for adoration and also communion to the sick is there um, and then the main tabernacle is used to um, keep the, the Eucharist after Mass, and even at times we have adoration there. So I, I think it's okay. Um, yeah, I think it's okay. You received communion before Mass? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they used to distribute it before Mass for people that didn't have time. Time to look at yeah. Really? Oh. Um, that's, yeah, that's I, I know as, now that I'm in a parish, Do you want some more water? as a priest, I... Do you want some more water? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks. So I, I had, I'll share an experience I had with you. Um, in the Adoration Chapel, I was praying one day, and one of the gentlemen asked me, can I, can I receive communion? And I said, yeah, sure, I, like, I, I can give you communion. I asked him to come out of the Adoration Chapel, um, and then we went to the tabernacle in the church, and I gave him communion. Uh, but then I told him, I said, if, if you're able to come, like if you're able to come in public, you should really come to come to mass um, because the Eucharist is not just like a magical piece of bread. Uh, the Eucharist is when we receive the Eucharist, we not only receive Christ's body, but we become part of Christ's body. There's that. I mean, we are part of Christ's body with our baptism. But there's this reality that's expressed in the communion of receiving it, communion, or with others. And so, as much as possible, 
that Eucharist should be tied to the Mass because that's the celebration of the resurrection. Um, that, does that help? Does that help answer your question? Yeah, not really. I mean, I understand that's the way I feel. I just wonder yeah. why it disappeared. Why? Well, I mean, it was okay yeah yeah I think I think there's a greater focus on uh, the mass and the celebration of the mass as a community as a body of Christ um, yeah and not it's not just about because one thing that's interesting is as Catholics we are obligated to go to mass how often Once a week. every Sunday and Holy, days. Holy Day of Obligation. And how often are we obligated to receive the Eucharist? Once a year during Easter. And so I, I think that I think that that sorts out like the the important yes, and if we're in a state of grace, we should receive every time we're at Mass, every time, daily. We're at mass, but just just to like emphasize the importance of worshiping as the body of Christ, um, and then receiving the Eucharist when when we are in a state of grace to receive. I I was thinking about your last statement, Chris, um, that if that was sixty years ago, perhaps that was one of the customs that Vatican II addressed. Um, sure. In the, in the the context of receiving the Eucharist, in the context of Mass, right. rather so than expediency. More than sixty years ago, nobody ever got. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. When will when will wine come back into the communion <laughs> at our church? I will say that I get this. I grew up in a parish where we received. The blood of Christ. we always receive. We receive the blood of Christ when we when we receive the bread, when we receive the bodies. But I I never received from the cup growing up at my home parish. Every once every other month maybe my priest would uh, do intinction, and so we would receive that way. Um, but yeah, so I I know many of you have the experience of receiving from the cup. I didn't. And, but I, w I would just say I received the Eucharist just as uh, anyone that received from both species, bread, bread and wine. Let's go back to that again. Is it going to come back to our church? And if not, why not? It's an archdiocese decision to make for the parishes within the And why? Are they being pushed at all to do that? Or anybody cares about it? Or? Yeah, I don't, I don't have power over it. But I'm just oh, saying. I, I, I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm just. I guess the point. The point is, it's it's not a it's not a necessity. Okay. That, I guess that's my point. So, so, so it could be infinitely postponed. But you know, you don't. You say it's not a necessity. But yet, when we celebrate the Eucharist, it is a necessity. The body of Christ. The blood of Christ. And we get to the part that we're supposed to get it. Who makes that decision? 
the bishop. CDC. The bishop. I mean, do you just one person makes that decision? I mean, I understand COVID and everything, but right. come on, that's right now. I would consider that a dead issue. Uh, okay, find out for me, please, and send me a letter. <laughs> it was a blessing to be here. Thank you, Kim, yeah. for the invitation.